0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. This
0: is one of those interviews where uh, as soon as the publisher's team emailed us and said that this author was doing interviews, I was like, we have to have her on. I think I, I typed maybe an all caps message to Tracy to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I kind of jumped up and down in my seat and kind of sent a note to the publisher to that effect. <laughs> Um, That her that we're speaking of is Stephanie jones Rogers. She's an assistant professor at Berkeley's Department of History. And in 2013, her dissertation won the Lerner Scott Prize, which is given to the best doctoral dissertation in U.S. women's history each year.
1: So she took that dissertation and expanded it into the book that's the topic of today's episode. That book is They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. This book uses financial and transactional records to corroborate accounts from formerly enslaved people about their experiences. And the resulting work is unflinching and difficult, but also really important in how it affects our knowledge about the business of slavery and specifically white women's place in it. So first up, Stephanie shared
0: what led her to this area of study. And then she talks a good bit about how she conducted her research. So the first thing I have to ask is, what first drew you to this particular avenue of research and
2: writing? So um, I went to Rutgers University and I was um, studying with uh, Deborah Gray-White, the great (laughs) Deborah Gray-White. And so as I was completing my coursework um, back in 2009, Um, I began to um, explore the work that had been done on formerly enslaved people um, in the 19th century as well as that scholarship that had been produced about white Southern women. And so, you know, I became really interested in the question of whether white Southern women, um, particularly married women, had an economic stake in the institution of slavery, whether they invested economically economically in the institution. And that question seemed to have two kind of two answers, emerged in those two subfields of of history. So in the histories um written about white southern women and their relationship to slavery, the 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 way that that relationship was characterized was primarily in all of these non economic ways. So um ideologically, um socially, um even you know indirectly perhaps um economic um in its basis, but largely there was this idea that White women in the South um, had a very distanced relationship to slavery and far more often that married women had no economic relationship to the institution of slavery in large part because of the ways that laws constrained married women's ability to own property and to um, to hold on to and control property after marriage. But on the other hand, those uh, scholars who looked at the experiences of African Americans during this period, and particularly enslaved people, were saying something very different. Um, they were drawing on a different set of sources, and they were um, d- saying that formerly enslaved people talked about female owners, they talked about being bought and sold by women, um, they talked about other individuals who they knew in their communities who had been owned, bought, or sold by women. And so I was really interested in this disconnect um, and became frustrated by that disconnect between these two subfields of history. And so I was really interested in, in addressing that question head on, addressing the question of whether white women had an economic, um, a deep in, in economic investment in the institution of slavery, and also showing what those investments looked like um, from the perspectives of those individuals who they owned and had the most intimate and deep experience of their, their control and their ownership and control. And those were for me, people, of work. So that was really where it started from kind of a frustration, a a moment of frustration. And and then um, it grew from there. Um, The project, rather, not the frustration. (laughs) (laughs) The project grew from there.
0: Uh, Did you find it difficult to track down information and accounts about white women's role in slavery and their economic stake in it?
2: So what I thought was really fascinating was that, um, I just kind of briefly mentioned it just now, is that, It seemed that the reason why there was this disconnect between or this lack of consensus around the question of whether white women and married white women in particular had an economic investment and stake in the institution of slavery was largely driven by different source bases. So the, the scholars of white Southern women. We're using, typically using the letters and the diaries of white Southern women to craft these accounts and histories of white Southern women's relationships to slavery. Whereas those individuals who focused on the experiences of African Americans were using these interviews that were conducted by federal employees at the behest of the federal government during the 1930s and 1940s, where formerly enslaved people were asked about their um, experiences in bondage. And so um, for me, it was, okay, which, which of these sources did I go to first, I went to the the diaries and the letters of white Southern women to see what they had to say about their economic investments in the institution. And while, yes, they did talk about it, they didn't talk about it often, and they didn't talk about the sale and purchase of enslaved people very often. And so I then said, okay, well, the people who are talking about it most frequently are those individuals who are subjected to this this control, this power, this the sales um, and the purchases and the separations that, that were brought about by it by these sales. Um, So I looked to formerly enslaved people's um, testimonies and their interviews and used the information that they provided in those interviews to um, help me to develop a strategy for where to go next. So by listening to what they had to say, by reading and being very attentive to um, what they were saying about white women's economic investments in the institution, I was able to develop a kind of course of action. So from their interviews, I then went to financial records um, and found women, um, just as they said I would, in you know in the records um, that documented the, the purchase and sale of enslaved people. They were identified as both the buyers and the sellers. Of enslaved people. I found them in um, court records where, you know, if um, someone had. Sold them um, an enslaved person who was unwell, and that person didn't disclose an illness to them when they purchased them. They could go into court and sue them. So I found women, you know, who owned enslaved people in in legal records and court records. Uh, and during the Civil War, I found them in military correspondence between Union officers as well as you know Confederate officials. And then of course there were slave traders, um, individuals typically men. Who, um, who, as a, as a, as a job, as a, their profession, bought and sold enslaved people for a living. And I found women in their account books and in letters that they wrote to their business partners. So by by paying close attention to what formerly enslaved people said about these these married women's economic relationships to the institution of slavery, I was able to find them in all of these other bodies of of sources and documents, basically corroborating and legitimating what formerly enslaved people had to say about white married women's um, economic investments in the institution.
0: So I'm glad you touched on that because one of the things I really, really love about this book is that you do destroy that tendency that has happened over years and years and years for people to dismiss some of these accounts from formerly enslaved people as unreliable by backing up their stories with a ton of corroborating documentation like you have all the receipts. Um, <laughs> at what point did you realize that you were going to be able to piece this puzzle together in that way and finally validate some of those voices with evidence that cannot be disputed?
2: Well, I thought what was really fascinating is, by, but so what I did, for, what, I, what I said to myself first is that who better to tell us what, uh, you know, how deeply invested white women were in the economy of slavery than those individuals who they owned? You know, and so by starting from that position, by starting from the position that no one could tell us the story of white slave owned women's economic investments in the institution more clearly, more cogently, and more powerfully than formerly enslaved people, I took them seriously. I took them at their word. And then I started to realize, like, it wasn't hard to make these connections and to corroborate the evidence because, for example, There were individuals who identified their former female owners by first and last name, even by their uh, maiden name. So there were all these ways in which they gave me the data. That I would need, and or the information that I would need to be able to go to other sources, like the census, for example. So I could read what one formerly enslaved person said about an owner. Say, okay, they gave me the first, middle, and last name of this person, the uh, you know approximate area where they grew up, so the where the person lived, and I would go to the census, and there there's the woman, <laughs> you know, that they talked about. So you know, just by taking them very seriously. And using their sources in a way that we use other sources, you know, like Washington, you know, George Washington, you know, letters or his, you know, diary or whatever, you know, I was able to go to these other sources and find the women exactly where they said they would be, um, and in the way that they characterized them, I was able to find find information that was ex- basically it, it suggested that. They were quite accurate in um, their their characterizations of the institution, but also the ways in which they implicated white Southern women and white married women in particular in the economy um, of American slavery and, and continued subjugation.
0: So the evidence has all been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Why do you mm-hmm. think it took so long for someone like you to go, you know, we can put this stuff together?
2: So on the one hand, um, so I should say that there are, of course, um, many scholars who have looked to these sources and have produced these really extraordinary studies of um, you know kind of the complexities of slavery. um, and they have also implicated, you know white women in the story of slavery. Um, but the economic dimension, particularly when it comes to married women, I think is, on the one hand, um, a, a, a issue related to the the laws at the time, um, and I'll just mention briefly. So there was there was um, a legal doctrine called couverture, which essentially mandated that if a woman who was either single or widowed owned any property before marriage, once she became married, once she married, all of the wealth that she brought into the marriage would automatically um, become her husband. So unless women um, figured out ways around this law, around these property laws um, that constrained and limited their ability to own and control property and enslaved people, this is what would happen. And so for a very long time, Many scholars of slavery and many scholars of Southern women really just, uh, I think, uh, embraced this idea that this was um, a very all encompassing kind of legal system, a, a legal doctrine that really did foreclose the possibility that married women could, in fact, own and control enslaved people in the ways that I show in the book. But what I did again is go to what formerly enslaved people had to say. And so they were saying things like, oh, my, my mistress owned me by law and not her husband. So I'm like, well, what do they mean by law? How could this be? And so what I found in the legal records is that women these white Southern women who owned enslaved people, particularly those who were married, were very explicit about how they came to own enslaved people. They would give, they would provide documents and provide proof to the court that in in that proof, what they would demonstrate was that there was this chain of ownership, that they would establish the ways by which, the means by which they came to acquire enslaved people as their own. And so what those documents also show is that women found ways, married women found ways around these legal constraints. And so, by listening to what formerly enslaved people had to say, I was able to then even kind of, kind of conceive of the idea that this was possible. And by thinking about this as a possibility, I then had to show how it was possible. And so, the legal records show um, the ways in which women were very savvy in navigating, you know, um, using loopholes and navigating around some of these constraints imposed upon them. So, I think in large part it was because of um, this, this, the way that we thought about these laws and the, the kind of constraints imposed upon women in this period because of married um, women in this period, because of um, the law. I mean, the other thing I think is because, you know, women's history um, was born in a moment in which the women's movement was, was powerful, that it was gaining momentum. And so the histories that were produced in, those, in, those, in that moment, they were also part of that project, part of a, a feminist project. And this is a very, and I say it all the time, this is a very ugly feminist history. You know, I mean, from one angle, you know, these women are able to secure a kind of freedom and autonomy in their lives um, in ways that we would not imagine or that would be fathomable for these women in this period. But they're able to do that by owning enslaved people by owning and oppressing other people that's that's an ugly that's the ugly dimension of this very feminist story So I think in some ways it's a story that doesn't mesh well it didn't mesh well with the feminist project um, of the, the 60s and the 70s you know, so I think those, those are two primary reasons why I think, you know, although the sources had been there and people had mulled over the sources and produced extraordinary studies using these same sources, um, those things, I think, um, kind of foreclose the possibility that this particular story would be told in the way that I did.
0: Coming up, Stephanie and I talk about how she coped with facing research that was often really upsetting and really weighed on her. But first, we're going to take a little break and hear from one of our sponsors. One of the things about this book is that uh, there are a lot of accounts in it that you um, shared that were relayed by formerly enslaved people. And they are stories that are so important, but they are also really difficult to read in some cases. Um, It's a lot of very heavy, ugly information. Did research and writing on this subject ever get a little bit overwhelming for you? Did you ever have to just be like, I'm "Not anymore today"?
2: I uh, that was a very a very frequent um, a very frequent experience for me. I mean, I you know, admittedly, for some of your um your, some of your listeners may not know, um, but I am um, an African American woman. I am the descendant of sharecroppers. I am the descendant of Southerners. I am the descendant of formerly enslaved people, and so. From that position, it was very difficult from a personal position for me to write this book because I'm too learning about what my ancestors endured. But also at the same time, as a historian, it was very difficult for me to grapple with the atrocities that were perpetrated against formerly enslaved people and that they survived. But what I often reminded myself of when I would take a minute, you know, sometimes I would have to take a day or two off because it was just so emotionally impactful for me. And what I would often remind myself of is that these formerly enslaved people, these African-Americans were giving these interviews in a time of lynching, in a time of severe racial hostility and racial terror and racial violence. And they did that in spite of the risks and the danger. And so they, and that underscores to me how important they thought it was for us as a nation to know their story, to know what they had endured, and to grapple with that as part of our national history. So for me, it was, it was, it was a duty in, in many respects for me to return to these accounts, to return to the writing in order to, to do justice. To the formerly enslaved people who sat down and risked their lives in many respects to tell their stories. So, for me, although it was difficult, and I know for readers it's very hard um, to read many of the accounts that I put, that I that I put forth in this book, but I always want to bring it back to the fact that these were individuals who thought it was so important for us to know what happened to them and to know what they survived, and to know that this was part of our national story, you know? So that's that's the thing that brings me back to the work every single time.
0: Oh, And they are so important. One of the things that you talk about in this book is how young girls in white families were given this identity of being slave owners as part of their upbringing, which is something I don't think we always think about, children kind of being involved from an early age. Will
2: you talk a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. So
2: you know, many of the many of the histories that we do have about white women and slavery, white women in the context of slavery, often start when they are adults, when they are married, when they have already, you know, kind of lived, you know, lived these childhoods and girlhoods and have, you know, raised that they were raised up in the South. But often the story of their relationship to slavery begins when they're adults and when they're in, in marriages. Or in widowhood. And so for me, that was really interesting because formerly enslaved people started the story in infancy, <laughs> you know, so they mm-hmm. talked about white girls, even white infants, white female infants who were given enslaved people as gifts. Whether at birth, for birthdays, whether at, at, as Christmas gifts, many times in many many cases they were given enslaved people as wedding presents. So, informally enslaved people talked about the fact that well before these women married, they were developing identities as Southern women or Southern females that were that was tied the identities that were tied to either actual slave ownership or the promise of slave ownership at a later date. Um, and so for me, it it was really important to begin the story there because it helps to explain a lot of stuff that happens later on. It helps to explain why, for example, when women were married, when, married, when slave owners and women married, that the women in this book that I talk about in this book weren't willing to relinquish their control over enslaved people and other forms of property to their husbands. They had developed these identities that were tied to their ability to own and control enslaved people and to, and, to own property. So they weren't willing to just simply relinquish that control to their husbands, you know. So it explains that when you start the story when they're little girls, and you see how profoundly um, slavery shaped their identities as Southerners, as 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 white Southerners in particular. So that's why I start the story there because that's really where um, I think we need to begin in order to understand what unfolds over the course of their lives, particularly once they reach adulthood.
0: You also talk kind of on the other end of the timeline spectrum about how white women defended the institution of slavery, particularly as it was becoming apparent that it was coming to an end. Will you talk a little
2: bit about that as well? One of the things that um, other historians who've looked at white women's relationships in the institution of slavery have shown is that slave- owning parents typically gave uh, their daughters more slaves than they did in land. So what they had in mind this idea that when their their children married, that they would have every they wanted them to have everything that they needed to get a great start. So what they would typically do is they would give their sons um, the land and would give their daughters, um more enslaved people, um so that once those daughters and sons married, they would have everything they need to get started, get a household started. Um, and so when you think about the fact that many of these, the women in this book are often, um, if not a significant, slave owner in the household that they go into when they marry. Um, there are others that are primarily the only, they are the only slave holders in the household. Some of these women are the only property owners in the household. So they are the ones who bring both the slaves and the land in rare exception, rare cases, um, to the household. So their husbands, their their husbands' identities are not necessarily tied to slavery and slave ownership in the ways that their, their, their wives are. And so when the Civil War emerges and and it becomes kind of clear, the writing is on the wall, that emancipation is inevitable, that the dissolution of slavery is around the corner. These women, who are in some cases more deeply invested, economically invested in the institution of slavery, more profoundly tied to the institution of slavery um, and slave ownership than their husbands, They understand that the war means, that emancipation means their financial ruin. So they are fighting tooth and nail to preserve the institution of slavery, not simply as indirect beneficiaries of the institution, but because they have a direct economic stake in the institution's preservation because they are the primary or or significant slave owners in their household. And so they understand that with emancipation, the value of those enslaved people that they hold in captivity is going to be gone. It's going to be zero. And so they will be financially destitute. So they fight throughout the war. They fight their own battle to preserve slavery in large part because of these economic investments. And then when it's over... Not only are they devastated because of the losses of the men and the boys in their lives who went off to war and never came back, but they are mourning a financial and economic loss. One woman described it, described emancipation as an unprecedented robbery. These women saw that all this wealth, the value in enslaved people was being stolen from them by the federal government. So they tried to recreate um, circumstances that, um, looked very much like smacked of slavery, um, these kind of pseudo slavery circumstances after the war was over, in hopes that they could hold on just for a, very, for a little while longer, hold on to the kind of the, the, the value of, of free labor. Um, meaning the labor that enslaved people offered to them or provided to them, coerced coerced to offer to them um, as the owners, as their legal owners. So it's really interesting that, you know, when you think about women as slave owners and w- individuals who could, in fact, have been the only slaveholders in the household, the Civil War and white women's responses to the war look quite different, right? you know? And so that's what the book shows um, as well. <sighs> um. While you were doing your research, which is so
0: extensive and I feel like so meticulous, did you come across any pieces of information
2: that surprised you? So there were two things that I thought were, um, that I was just, you know, shocked by, even though I shouldn't have been, um, you know, because of all the the other things that formerly people had to say about these women, I shouldn't have been shocked to find out um, what I did. So one of the things that um, I I really try to focus on in the book is, is, you know, these economic relationships and investments that white women had in the institution. And while it was, you know, it became kind of, you know, obvious to me after a while, after doing the research that, you know, women would engage in, Slave market activities in the ways that they did, and by slave market I mean there was really there were really brick and mortar structures where individuals could go and essentially shop for enslaved people. Um, because I think some people don't realize that that's not a metaphor. You know, it's mm-hmm. you know it's like they were real markets. And so, you know, I didn't expect to find out that white some white women were involved in the business side. Of buying and selling enslaved people. So there is a woman that I talk about in the book who was part of a family business where she would front the money. Um, so she would invest the money um, to, so that her her nephew could buy the slaves and sell the slaves. And when he sold the slaves, she and her nephew would split the proceeds of those sales down the middle. Um, so I didn't expect to find women who were involved in the business side of of, of the slave um, of the slave trade and the business. Um, I also didn't expect For formerly enslaved people to talk about white women who own slaves and who created circumstances in which they coerced them into um, having um, sex against their will. Mm -hmm. So there were, in fact... Slave-only women who um, committed acts of sexual violence or created circumstances in which actual sexual violence could be perpetrated against enslaved people um, in this period. So that was another thing that was surprising to me, although, of course, now I think, you know, thinking back on it, it shouldn't have been surprising. Right. But those are two things that were really surprising that I uncovered as I researched for this book.
1: In the next segment, Holly asks Stephanie about the way women who owned enslaved people saw themselves. But before we get into that, we will pause for a quick sponsor break.
0: also includes some discussion towards the end of the book about the disparity, and you've talked about it already in this interview some, between the way white women of the time wrote about the institution of slavery and their role in it versus the much uglier reality. And I wonder, do you think that was something of a PR move on their part in characterizing themselves as generally kind and benevolent mistresses or even innocent bystanders in some ways? Or do you think they actually believed they were those things?
2: I think that there were some individuals who really did believe that they were being kind of maternal benevolent figures in the institution of slavery. But the other, I think, there were also many women who knew it was a lie,
1: <laughs> just right. to call
2: it what it is. That they knew it was a lie, and so some of the the women that I discuss in that part of the portion of the book that you're you're mentioning here, um, they were writing these books, and they they have acknowledgements or um, you know dedications where they make it clear they are writing these books, these accounts for their descendants, for their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. So they are very in a very calculated way, in a very um, purposeful way, constructing a whitewashed and sanitized narrative that that positions them as these maternal benevolent figures and positions slavery as a benevolent institution that was good for Black people. So they are very consciously pre- constructing a narrative that they know is a lie. Um, and so, of course, like you said, formerly enslaved people are like That's a lie. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's a lie. And I'll tell you why it's a lie. So, you know, you do see, yes, women, you know, were in fact, they did in fact style themselves as, you know, kind of maternalist and benevolent figures. um, But nevertheless, um, you know, there were others that knew it was a lie and constructed, you know, narratives that erased the kind of darker dimensions, the more violent dimensions, and the economic dimensions of their investments in the institution um, uh, very purposefully.
0: What's next for you? I know I read somewhere that you're collecting additional data about this topic.
2: Yes. So um, there are kind of, I have on a couple of hats. So one is a quantitative project, um, which I've been working on since About 2014, which essentially tries is trying to put the numbers in the story. So the the book doesn't really offer um, statistics, and and that was intentional on my part, in large part because I'm continuing to work on the quantitative data, trying to determine, you know, um, give a, a sense of just how many women were involved in the institution of slavery who owned slaves. And so I'm using census data and other smaller data sets throughout the South to construct a database which will provide those numbers. And just from the preliminary research, um, I've, I've learned that in some cases the women constituted 40% of the slaveholders in certain regions of the South. And I'm, I'm imagining that those numbers will also be replicated in the larger data sets um, because you know, there's been work done um, in Britain on um, slave owners um, who you know, file for compensation once Britain abolished slavery and women constituted 40 percent of the applicants for compensation in britain so there are ways in which i think there these numbers this this 40 figure seems pretty consistent um across um across slave owning um groups during this period so i imagine that the additional um data um, that i look at um the quantitative data that i compile will um bear that out as well so that's 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 the immediate, one of the immediate projects that I'm working on. And I'm also working on what I call the legal sequel of this project because this one was primarily focused on you know, the economic dimensions of women's investments in institutions. But the law made – their ability to kind of manipulate the law and to work around certain laws made those economic investments possible. So I see this book as a kind of necessary um, kind of second follow, a follow-up. Um, to the to the first book, so I'm working on a kind of um, a, a legal um, history um, of of white women's relationships to the institution of slavery.
0: Did you have any idea when you started down this path that it would consume so many years of your life?
2: <laughs> uh. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not.
0: My deepest thanks to Stephanie for talking with me. She is an absolute delight, and long after the interview ended, I yacked her ear off about all manner of things. Uh, If you would like to catch up with her online, you can do so at stephaniejonesrogers.com. That's all run together. Or on Twitter, where she is sejr underscore historian.
1: So the book, once again, is They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South, and it's available wherever books are sold.
0: It is a really dense like I mentioned in the interview meticulously researched read there is a lot of information in that book and uh, as we discussed not always easy to read some of those accounts of really the horrible things humans can do to one another but there's it's so so good um I really really loved it I thought though since this was kind of a heavy topic we would do some mostly light listener mail <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm doing a little bit of postcard roundup again. The first one is from, I'm not sure if the name is Jana or Jonna, uh, but it is a lovely postcard from Scotland. And Jana writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I am about to finish my semester abroad in Edinburgh, Scotland. I wanted to write in and say thank you for keeping me company over the last couple of months. I am studying history and y'all always help to remind me why I got into this business. Y'all are amazing. Thank you so much. And I hope your, uh, your time abroad has been spectacular because that sounds lovely. It's a beautiful picture. Of Scotland, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Our next one, I won't read the whole thing, but I will mention it is from our listener Allison, who sent uh, with my name with a couple of exclamation points a beautiful picture of a silk dress that was from a 17th century shipwreck found in 2004 off the coast of the Dutch barrier island of, I think it is pronounced Tessel. She mentions some other things that were also found in that shipwreck, but it's a really cool photograph of this dress that I bet in its heyday was utterly spectacular to behold. Um, it looks a little, you know, like it has been in a shipwreck, but you can still see these vibrant pinks and yellows and and really pretty weaving in the silk, so it's absolutely lovely. My last one I'm not going to read because it, it includes some fairly personal information, but I wanted to just say hi to this listener and how much we appreciate this letter. It's from our listener Jennifer, who wrote us about... Um, uh, being on medical leave for some stuff and listening to our podcasts to kind of help her feel normal, and to me that is a great honor that we get to in, in any way help someone get through a rough time. So thank you so much for your letter, Jennifer. We are thinking of you, um, and we're so thankful to have you as a listener. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at houseofworks You can also find us pretty much anywhere on social media as Mist in History. You can also visit our website, which is mistinhistory And if you would like to subscribe to the show. That's something we highly encourage. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.